brought to you by Brass and Unity. We make wearable conversation starters. Our new buddy check packs are available now. Grab one and check on one of your closest buddies. They may need it now more than ever. Go to brassandunity.com, use the code UNITY and get 20% off. And let's all heal together. And brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat flip-flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. And brought to you by Daisy May Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. And brought to you by American Yogi. In a world increasingly driven toward the grind, find your outlet for peace. American Yogi is a mindfulness-based apparel and wellness brand with international retreats, free classes, and rad clothing and accessories to support you along life's journey. Find American Yogi on Instagram at liveamericanyogi or at americanyogi.com. American Yogi is proud to support the Brass and Unity podcast and its community with the code BRASS15. Join the mindful counterculture. Live American Yogi. So Stuart Scheller is on the show this week. I am super excited to have you because as I was sitting before, all of our equipment decided to say, we're not doing this today. I was going over about Afghanistan. So many of us watched the fall happen and we watch you stand up the way we wished most of us could, except the difference was we weren't putting our careers on the line. And the reason I wanted to speak with you was because when your video surfaced, I was in the middle of uh, working with some ground troops to move some Canadians that my government abandoned and just continues to abandon because Canada's like, you don't need to come to a safe space. We're going to let you stay there. And so now we still have a ton of Canadians uh, and IRCC visa holders sitting in Afghanistan in hiding due to the lack of accountability from the Trudeau government. Now, you are somebody where, I won't lie to you, I know a lot of Marines. This book, Fox, you wrote all of this? I did. Okay. I mean, you are an officer, so we'll give you that. But it's impressive. It's impressive. It's a great book. It's well-written. And you know what I love the most about it? was I got to learn a little bit about you, but the thing that was so different comparable to any other person's Afghan books is you dove into military history in the way that I wish others understood, meaning you dove into why people move the way they move, why we shouldn't be moving that way, how we can change and work with the locals better so that this all would make sense. And there's a lot of parts in this book I want to get to, but first, um, I just want to say thank you for being on. Thanks for taking the time. And more importantly, thank you for this. Thanks, Kelsey. I really appreciate that. I'm excited to be on. Yeah. Um, 
man, not only do you have a hitter list of just amazing people supporting you, which is great to see, you're ruthless. You called out, listen, no, listen, let me explain something to you. You called out people. So listen, there's somebody I was going to call out in my book and they were like, don't do that. And I was like, but why? And they're like, because they're big in the community. And then I thought to myself, so does that mean that because somebody becomes successful and a star general or, or an X, Y, and C Navy SEAL that we no longer have to hold those accountable for shitty behavior? Is that, is that what you're telling? And then you were like, nah, son, I'm about to wreck some lives. Yeah. So I didn't go, it was very hard. And when I went through my ordeal, my first video was in August. I didn't start writing that until March. And that was even three months after I had gotten out. And I did that very intentionally for a couple of reasons. One, I, I wanted it to come out where it was still being discussed. And so I tried to time it to the one year anniversary, but also the cathartic slash emotional roller coaster that I was on. It was very hard not to be vindictive because all of those people I felt like that claimed to be leaders, not one of them, not only didn't stand by me or address my content, but didn't even on like a human level, reach out to me and say, Hey, Stu, how are you doing? You just got fired. You know, you're, you're going through a divorce. You just got out of jail. Like, how are you from a human level? None of them even had the courage to do that. And so once I got through the anger, I mean, I don't know if you'll ever completely get through it, but I decided I kind of came to the realization that I had to be painfully honest, not try to come across as vindictive, but just call it like I saw it. And just like you're saying, there's a lot of um, places where it's like, maybe I shouldn't call this person out, but it's just, it's factual. And it brings to light just a lot of the problems that we have in the military. Yeah, we do. And it's interesting to watch people transition as um, into the civilian world and see who takes on that role, uh, whether it's a leadership role, whether it's an advisory role or what have you, contracting, you name it. It's interesting to see how they change, how they develop and see what they're going to take from their time in the service and utilize rather than just... Um, Kind of say, okay, like for example, we have a lot of Navy SEALs in the community who are now leaderships, leadership standpoint in the civilian world. They take what they learned as a Navy SEAL, they go into companies and they try to revamp them. But in my opinion, I don't know that that works. Um, I think there's aspects of leadership that come from service that can be translated into the business world in a very effective way. But I don't know that doing it the way that everyone does it really helps people long-term. I think leadership and solving problems is the key skills that you have to take away from the military. And so that's, you know, each person's different. I had a buddy that was a pilot that had to get out. He was a major, knows nothing about finance, went on to Wall Street and just crushed it. And I was talking to him about it. And he said, just that, you know, we are problem solvers. A lot of people in the infantry or Navy SEAL or, you know, the gun club community think that they got to go out and be a cop or be in the security field or, or private contracting. And I think if you can divorce yourself from that and just figure out how to be a leader and a problem solver, then the sky's the limit. Uh, but the problem is when you try to force some of those, you know, tactics and techniques uh, without just staying broad in terms of leadership and problem solving that you can get into trouble. 
Yeah, I, I, I would completely agree with that statement. So let's dive into the beginning here. So you had an interesting uh, jump into the military, one that uh, I didn't expect, especially seeing how far you went down that chain. But uh, let's dive right in. Did you have service members in the family? Did you decide, I just want to go after 9-11? Like, what was your deal for people who aren't reading this? So I didn't have any family members in the military or any friends that were in the military. My grandfather was in the army. He landed at the beaches of Normandy, but he never really talked about it. And then he only did his, you know, World War II experience. And then he got out and was in the FBI and the federal service. And so, like, I knew he had served, but I didn't know much more than that. And when I was growing up, my, the, the path charted for me was college to go get a good job. And that's just kind of the path I walked because that's what my family had had charted for me and I and I seemed reasonable. And so that's what I did. And I went and got an accounting degree and I got an accounting degree because I, I was told by my family that, you know, I, I wanted to carry a gun. I wanted to, to be on a competitive team. And so the FBI was in the back of my mind. And I was told if you got your CPA that the FBI is likely to hire you. But 9-11 uh, happened. I was a sophomore in college. And even then I didn't have the urge to join the military. It wasn't really for me until a couple of years later, it was 2004, the war was hot and heavy. And I just decided that I wanted to give back to my country. I like that stance. It seems like a lot of people I've spoken to recently, they have a similar conversation with me and it's either one of two directions. 9-11 happened. I'm off. Here we go. Let's go. Or 9-11 happened. We're going to watch how this plays out for a minute, whether they were younger, like um, <clears throat> it's going to date me, but I was 11 when 9-11 happened. Right. So for me joining in the military, there was no real conversation also being Canadian about, you know, 9-11 joining and that being a, a reasoning behind it. That being said, looking back, charting dots, you can always see that there's some type of connection to, you know, the war on terror. It, it was inevitable. It was everywhere. Everyone saw it, whether you liked it or not. Subconsciously, it was in the media. It was in the newspapers and people were talking about it. Yeah, so, 100%. 100%. So for you, where, where were you when you joined? Which part of America? I, at that point, so I graduated from the University of Cincinnati in Ohio, and I moved out to the East Coast to Virginia Beach. And I was living there working in a, it was an auto manufacturing firm. So I worked in like the corporate office doing bookkeeping type stuff. And I, when I decided I wanted to join the Marine Corps, pursued the officer pipeline through the recruiters in Richmond, Virginia. And it seemed like when I started reading your book, that was an interesting transition for you because you didn't really have an entry level into the military until you just went into the officer course and got your face kicked in. Yeah, that's a hundred. Yeah. I, I honestly <laughs> had no idea what I was getting into and you would think that I would have been smarter and talked to some people and figured out what I was about to experience. I just went in there blind. I grew up playing sports my whole life, trying out for teams. And so in my head, it was going to be, show up and here's the challenge, go out there and do the challenge. And if you don't make the cut, then you don't make the team type deal. Now, I wasn't prepared for just the the screaming and beratement, uh, which it was. And so I, it was a culture shock for me right out of the gate. Do you think because of how much of a shock it was to your system that changed the way that you would become a leader down the road? You know, that's interesting. I, I I absolutely reflected on it. In fact, even officer candidate school where our, 
it was the shock to the system the first place that I went, which is the boot camp for officers. I went back and worked there. And so even as a captain, getting to be exposed to it again, you know, thinking through how we screen for potential, it absolutely had an impact on me. But I think my my value system and who I wanted to be as a person was probably built prior to that. Obviously, the Marine Corps experience has helped it. We have this debate in the Marine Corps all the time. Are, are leaders born or are they made? And the book answer is that leadership is made. But the truth is, it's more complicated than that. You know, everyone has talents and everyone has different approaches and that a lot of those things are developed prior to the military. And then you use your military experiences to, in your own way, figure out the most effective way to influence and lead. And so I had an upbringing and a, and a competitive background that that I used that never went away. And there's a, just a way I, I like to be treated. So it's like treat people how you want to be treated type deal. Mm-hmm. And so my leadership philosophy is always never ask someone to do something you're not willing to do. Always be as smart and as knowledgeable as you can, but don't try to pretend like you know everything. And um, and I tried to carry that forward despite all my experiences. And when you say that you were an athlete, what's really fascinating to me is normally when I talk to a Marine, they were like, oh, I played football. You're like, yeah. I played soccer. <laughs> I actually, I went on uh, the Latrell Brothers podcast and they said the same thing. My dad was an insurance salesman. I was an accountant and I was a soccer player. And they were like disgusted in that yeah. resume. But it was like, hey, like we all come in different shapes and sizes. Like I'm a warrior. I get it. That background doesn't scream like the the norm, but that's who I am. Yeah, but that's okay. I think that's what's really great about you, though, too, though, is it can show that leadership can come from all different shapes and sizes. It does not have to be developed through somebody who has had a grandfather in World War II, somebody who fought in Vietnam and who just, you know, integrated all these things and tools and lessons into their lives. It shows you that really anybody, if they try hard enough, can go and be a true leader. So it's okay. Listen, it's no fault of your own. I played soccer. It's okay. And I'll accept the fact that your phone is ringing right now, but I will give you serious shit for that. I will give you, listen to me, ladies and gentlemen, let me explain what happened this morning. Okay. So Stu showed up late. Then everything shut down mid interview during one of my greatest rants of all time. And then his phone rang approximately 10 we're going to do this, Kelsey. We're doing we're gonna this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. This is going to be the best fucking podcast. You're goddamn right it is. You know why? Because <laughs> you're fucking here and I'm hosting it. Welcome to the Thunderdome. This is how this works. So that's great, though. I, I won't I won't give you too much shit about soccer. I played competitive soccer. I think there's uh, there's something to be said about team sports. Um, it, it can really show and grow a leader while working in an environment like that. I did team sports for a little while and then I switched to individual sports because I was sick of people letting me down. I think that's why the military and I were not super tight. Uh, I'm more of an individual person when it comes to that accountability is really, really important to me. And when I saw you step into the role that you did in Afghanistan, that's when it really hit because let's be honest to do what you did. Did you, you're smart, man. You knew what was coming down the pipeline if you released that video, right? Yeah, obviously. I mean, if you go back and watch it, I stated I knew I was risking my job and my retirement and my family's stability. There's no way to predict the outcome of everything that happened, but I I did not make the decision lightly, nor did I think that there wouldn't be repercussions. But I ultimately decided that 
it was important enough to do it anyway. Yeah. And I think that's the difference between you and a lot of people very clearly, very obviously the people you call out in this book. So let's, let's dive into a little bit. You've had multiple deployments. You have seen a lot of things. You've been involved in a lot of things. Um, what I really liked about here, you have a chapter in this book and forgive me for not remembering it off the top of my head. That's my TBI brain coming at you. You did something really great that um, I will state if a lot of people wrote a book the way you did and then laid out how these things happen to you, i.e. someone with a vagina, this would not go well. But it seems like it went pretty good for you. So you said, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about my deployments and, and what happened to me and, and some of the things I saw, but I'm going to give you the cliff notes and you go point form, bang, 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 bang over some really aggressive, you just skate over some of these really aggressive points. And my hope is that you are going to write another book and really pull out these, because I think there's so much to be learned from even just reading those key points. And it would do honestly a disservice to yourself to not dive into those and, and give those to the reader. So that's my personal well, I appreciate opinion. Appreciate you on saying that. that. You know, you're only the second person who said that to me. The other person who said it was my dad. Um, he said, you know, these these bullet points that you I basically introed it and outroed it and then yeah. weaved them through the book. But my dad yeah. said the same thing. He's like, you know, the real hard hitting part is how you see this going forward and your recommendations for change. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you though, Kelsey, I wrote a master's paper that was like 60 pages and actually took me longer to write than the book. Don't and, brag. Well, Don't brag about your master's. Okay. I'm, I'm saying it to say sometimes when you write like a really heavy academic uh, insight, no one wants to read that shit. No, and so what I tried to do with this book is have a personal story that like a reader wants to relate to the character, have an emotional connection, but still gets hit unexpectedly with a lot of rational thought on how we can make the military system better. Can you believe that actual military members can come out with trauma and still have useful insight for the world? Yes, I wholeheartedly believe that. Yeah, good. I'm glad. I'm glad because you need to be showing more people that I'm going to read through some of these because I think it's really important that people understand the, to the extent in which you served on these deployments, you're not an officer who sat in the office and said, Hey, I'm going to send you guys out outside the wire. You guys are going to go patrol X, Y, and Z and, uh, Godspeed. Good luck. You went out quite often with these people. You had some serious experiences and without sounding morbid, some of these points you touched on, on page 84, 85 and going through, they're beautiful. As traumatic as they are, they're beautiful experiences that it's, it, it gets me a little emotional because you've written one in here that um, I actually went through um, quite a few of them, but one of them in particular, but I was called out for and uh, told that didn't happen. So let's dive into some of these because you know my vagina and all. So you you got into a, a firefight in a poppy field, touching my eye, having my eye swell shut and continue to shoot with my left eye. That's great. I'm sorry. I'm glad you had that experience. That's comical. So I don't know if I put it in there, but I had, you know, we had to wear like gloves. And so right. when you have gloves on, you kind of like lose the essay situational awareness of what's on your gloves. You know, when you're in your firefight, you're not really paying attention and, you know, I, my eye just itched. I didn't, it was like a involuntary reaction where I just quickly rubbed it 
Right. And I mean, immediately, immediately. <laughs> and I had, I had sunglasses on. And so I continued the firefight as best I could. And I didn't put this in the book. So after the firefight, we, uh, we were dismounted. I walked back to the mounted patrol and I called the doc and I was like, Hey doc, this is uh, captain Shell. I need you to meet me in the back of the patrol. And we had just been in a firefight. So he was like, are you shot? Are you okay? And I was like, I'm okay. I'm okay. Right. I just need you to, to get back here. And so he comes around and he's, he's like, you know, does the once over. He's like, what's wrong. And I took off my glasses. He's like, Oh my God. And, uh, <laughs> so it was a pretty funny reaction. No, I appreciate that though, because so often you're dealing with really traumatic situations over there, you know, people being blown to bits, really traumatic things, people being shot, bleeding out to death. And you're like, I'm not feeling good. And it's really just because of your stupid decision. So I'm just going to keep going on here. Um, so failing to call close air support correctly now. Ooh, yeah, I can go into that one. one. So yeah, we let's were... dive in. We had, uh, we were on a patrol. We patrolled all the time. I was with uh, uh, an infantry company from the 101st and I had befriended the company commander. So we were the same rank. So it's kind of unique, right? So you got a company commander that's a captain. Then you got this counter ID Marine that's a captain. So we Pause. were kind of like, buddy. what year was this one? Uh, this was probably winter of 11, 12. So it was like okay. the winter time frame. Okay. Um, may, maybe, maybe spring of 12. Okay. And the company commander and, and he had a, a, let's call it two platoons out patrolling. And I had my EOD guys with me and essentially, and we had a bunch of ANA with us too. We found uh, a platoon size of Taliban. Like we had eyes on them before they had eyes on us. And it was like, Oh, we got them dead to rights. And we were behind some berms. And we were like, let's, let's engage this ambush. Let's get them. And the company commander made the call. You know, we've got casts on support rather than risk it. Let's call the cast. And the, the, the fact wasn't a fact. It was a, a air force JTAC. So a, a sergeant an E5 and the guy was good. And so the guy calls in the nine line, the first nine line, the, the pilot asked for it again. So, you know, imagine sitting there seeing the Taliban, you want to kill him. And now he's got to, repeat the nine line he repeats the nine line the pilot gets it and then he we gave him uh the battalion commander's initials to drop so everything was approved but sometimes pilots make the decision that they also want to get pid so even though he had the authority he wanted to make double sure that it was a good so he came down and flew over and when and... he came down to fly over to get his secondary pid Somehow at that moment, the Taliban realizes the cast is maneuvering on them. One of their guys gets eyes on our position. And then as that bird is flying away to kind of get back in the loop to drop the bomb, the firefight started. Now the Taliban got the, got the initiative. So now we're reacting by being proactive and, and triggering ourselves. And in the firefight, one of the ANA got shot in the face. So we're on the berm. You know, one of the guys goes flying back because he took it right in the headlights. We don't end up killing any of them. The Taliban's able to egress. The bomb never drops. So now we got this dead ANA partner. And, you know, we ultimately feel like we fucked this up. So we call the rotary wing to try and get a, a bird to pick up this dead body. And they would not do it because he was at ANA. 
And so then we had to pull out one of our body bags instead of putting a Taliban member in it. We put the ANA partner and we had to, we had to carry him back five miles on that patrol. And it was like, just so heart wrenching. Cause we know it was like our ineptitude that got him killed. And then we had to carry him the whole way. You know what though, that was preventable <clears throat> and that's upsetting. That's that, 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 that was preventable, but what shows character and a lot of people would have done is just left him there, but you didn't. So yeah. I think that's worth acknowledging. You didn't. And um, I don't know. I, I'm going to push back. I, I don't know if any of the guys that I served with would have left one of our dead brothers there. Like we're going to take a dead brother. Now there might've been a situation where like you're in such a heavy firefight that you got to make a, a, a tough decision, but that wasn't the case in this one. And so yeah. I would hope if anyone has the means that you're going to carry your, your bodies back. Uh, ideally, but I think there's also, like you said, there's also sometimes the reality that that's not a viable option. So that's always, um, that's always a situation, right? So that's, yeah, that's, that's unfortunate. I'm sorry that that happened the way it did. Unfortunately, people are more afraid of repercussions with war crimes than they are with just pulling the trigger when necessary. And that's how people get killed. Um, take that for whatever you will. Now, I learned recently more about UA, uh, UAVs and some technology that has adapted since I've been out in 2011. I went to spend some time with the Canadian Army last week to shoot my last round because, let's be honest, they really fucked up with me. So they felt like they owed it. Uh, so <laughs> not my words, theirs. And um, I learned a lot well, about- You know, good for you because the Marine Corps has not invited me back to shoot on a range. So- Gee, I wouldn't- you Dude, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why that would be. I mean, I think you pissed off everyone from the from the <laughs> bottom to the top. And I feel like if any of them could get their hands on you, oh, especially some of these people in this book, I'm shocked you're alive sometimes. <laughs> you ever think about that? Let's tangent here. You ever think about that? Yeah. About the I people mean, you blew out? Uh, yeah. I mean, it goes back to, I just felt like I needed to tell the truth. I wasn't trying to be vindictive, but some of those guys were just assholes and all I had to do. And I, I was actually, even the ones that I called out, like there's a hundred stories behind just two or three that I told. And I was very selective as to who I called out, but every person that I did call out, like absolutely had to come in. Again, second book. <laughs> just hear me on it. Okay. Second book, change the names. And just fucking just, you know, that thing where you just take your boot and you just shove it down their throat. You should do that because just change the names. That's what the publisher said. If you change the names, no one can get you in trouble. That's what I did. Anyway, let's get back to this. Okay. Realizing burning shit was bad. Okay. We, hmm. and also, yes, we do. We get these little fake penises they give us when we go outside the I wire. I've, I had a female EOD um, tech that rode in long patrols with me and she had the funnel yeah. uh, and used it. Shit's legit, man. Just saying. We got to pick our colors. Never used it, but. I actually had a moment where I was talking about how I had and they were all like, you just piss in the bottle. And then the young female corporal was like, yeah, I do it too. And it, it actually took me like 30 seconds. And I was sitting there in the vehicle. So imagine like a 30 second pause. And then I was like, <laughs> wait a minute. I got, I, I have a follow-up question. And then they all started laughing because they realized it took me so long to get it. And then she showed me her fucking device. And I was like, okay. Yeah. And those are issued and need to be returned. Oh, that's disgusting. I didn't know that. I mean... 
just saying. Anyway, okay, so that was fantastic. Um, the burning shit was bad. This one's not as funny. I think this is something that we are seeing major repercussions later on down the road from exposure to burn pits and things like this. Do you want to touch on this at all, please? Yeah, I mean, it just, it actually blows my mind the problems that we have um, with the cancer that's coming up in a lot of veterans. And there's just no way to prove um, direct causality, but it's obviously one of those things that's had a huge impact on the veteran community. And it's unfortunate. And I put it in there just to say, like, I mean, it was regular practice and um, it's tough to think about, you know, I, as an officer was telling my corpsman that he had to do that every day. And I, I did it for him a couple of times, but, you know, I still talk to him. He's doing all right. But uh, obviously something that we should have been smarter about. Yeah, that's uh, that or burning garbage pits right beside the fobs. Yeah, same, same, same. Not an ideal situation. Trying to pull intelligence off of dead bodies, realizing movies never show how rigor mortis works. Now, yeah, it actually blew my mind. So it, it's happened to me multiple times. Like I'd go and we would check the pockets, right? And I don't know if anyone's ever like actually grabbed a dead body, like within hours, it is like almost impossible to manipulate these people. And that just, I never knew that that was a thing. No, it's because they don't talk. They don't, <laughs> they don't tell you about the dirty nitty gritty once it happens, because I think if they did, most of us would be like, you know what, <laughs> you know what, you're right. I probably shouldn't be doing this. And this is probably not going to well, think about it. In most. every movie, a dead person, you just like easily pick up the arm and manipulate them. Like, yeah. that's not true. That doesn't work like that. Hollywood, you lie. Get it together. Why would Hollywood ever lie? <laughs> yeah, It's fine. Killing my first person with a rifle. How comfortable do you feel about going into this? Yeah, so on that one, the first one, um, we were we were on a mounted patrol on a on a known IED route, and so I took two guys on uh, one side of the road, and then we had three guys on the other side of the road. We were doing what was called walk the rails to try to push forward to the mounted patrol to scare off any IED emplacers and. We did. We caught a guy messing with something on the road, and then he didn't realize we were dismounted and that far in front of the mounted patrol. So it was kind of this thing where he saw us, we saw him, and so he skirted between the buildings. And so the three guys on the one side of the road took off, and then we took off. And the guy crossed the street on the opposite side, so I didn't think. But what he did was he crossed again. And so as we were running through all these alleyways, all of a sudden we came like face to face. It was like one of those things where you like, you're both like five feet from each other and you pick up your guns and shoot a bunch of rounds and somehow no one gets shot. <laughs> and then the machine guns, what was happening was he was in placing IEDs for a complex ambush. And so that he had guys with machine guns, RPKs. And so essentially they just started shooting at us, the dismounts instead of the mounted patrol. And so then it was like firefight everywhere. And so then me and the guy that had run in face to face started playing like peekaboo around the corner and shooting at each other. And I did this probably three or four times. And then finally I got the courage to just hold the corner and not pop back behind. And the next time he popped around I got him right in the face. Let's talk about how you felt about that. How felt, old were you when this happened? Uh, 29. Okay. And to your knowledge, that was the first time you, you, yeah, I mean, it's funny because in combat, like, it's like, you know, 
if you call, I've called in air support and killed a bunch of people, but like it almost feels more removed, right? Or you uh, paint the target and then somebody else drops a bomb and kills a bunch of people. Or, you know, you're the officer and you have a platoon that you put in a place that kills a bunch of people. So it's like all of those, like you could say are kills, but like this is that story I just gave you is like, a, you know, me and him with a rifle. And so there's like different degrees to how you can like separate yourself from the kill. But in that situation, like, I don't feel bad at all. Like I, I put myself in a situation where I was playing the ultimate game of combat and I was a better shooter on that day. And like, I, I won the game. So like, I don't feel any remorse. Well, I can tell it hasn't really had a long-term repercussion on you at all. <laughs> it's fine. It's, it's okay. Whatever Marine. Um, all right, let's move on then. We'll pick and pry something else. That's interesting though. Um, that is interesting though, because you're right. When, when you are not face to face, there is this moment where you realize that you're removed. I was an yeah. artillery gunner running a triple seven. Where did I think those were going? That's right. Um, what I learned recently about America versus Canada, which was a fun fact. I wish I kind of glad I didn't know at the time was you guys like to indiscriminately use, depending on the situation, the person calling command, white phosphorus. Yeah, so we do have that in our arsenal and we do use white phosphorus at, at times. We call it a little shake and bake, a little H-E in, in WP. But uh, there's a lot of rules preventing that. So even though we train with it, in in country it's not something that i ever used um but it is in our arsenal i'm not saying it hasn't ever been used but i i can tell you i was a fist leader in iraq and a fire support team leader is what that stands for and i was a weapons company commander uh i didn't get deploying combat for that one but i'm i'm very well versed in at least the marine corps fire support arsenal and how we bring all those munitions to bear and in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was pretty strict rules preventing that. You would need multiple general officers to approve that. It's not something that a captain or, or a major can just uh, use w at his discretion. So I learned when I was under an American command, it could be used. But because we were Canadians, we were, it is considered a war crime in Canada to use that on people. But when you run under Americans, it's not. Yeah. I, I mean, again, it would require a general officer's approval, at least in the, the you know, ROEs change every mm -hmm. month almost sometimes. So like I can just say from my experiences in Iraq in 07 and Afghanistan from 11 to 12, uh, there there was rules that governed it. But yeah, you're right. I don't think we called it a war crime, uh, but there were very strict rules uh, that wouldn't allow us to just use it whenever we wanted. Yeah, it was... Uh reserved for very specific situations, i.e. Right. Americans losing control of situations and people and being afraid of individuals, civilians coming out to help them. So that's yep. fun. Um, and, and you're exactly right. So from a tactical standpoint, where you would use it a lot of times is to build a wall mm -hmm. of white phosphorus to prevent something. So like a, a, uh, a there's a, there's a fire support task of prevent. Right? right. And so you would probably have a better time calling in a prevent mission or a disruption mission than trying to use it on, on troops on the ground. 
Yeah, absolutely. There's, like I said, things move really quick uh, when it's necessary and people's lives are on the line, which I have no qualms with. Sitting in an EOD truck when a machine gunner was hit with an RPG and fell into the truck, jumping onto the gun and pretending like my injured teammate wasn't even there. Yeah, I was a young airman, but he, he was okay. The, the RPG wasn't a direct hit. He took some shrapnel from it. He got a purple heart. Um, yeah. So he survived that then, which is yeah, great. Yeah, he was okay. He was okay. How do you cope with that in that time frame when that happens? Is it compartmentalization? Is it, you know, tactical? You just, you're worried about making sure that the gun is manned. What does that look like from someone? Yeah, you just block it out and you just, you just do what you got to do to get, get through the moment. Um, yeah, you absolutely have to compartmentalize. It's the only way. And then you try to process it later. I think the hardest part was like that little alleyway where we kept getting shot at with RPGs was this guy, this one guy found a choke point and it was like every third week he, you know, like we would search for him for like a month and nothing. Right. And then on the 31st day he would shoot us. And so like, we knew exactly where the spot was, but we just could not find this guy. And I don't know if we ever found him and he, he put some damage on us. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine. It's amazing what one person can do when you can dress like civilians and blend in, huh? That's exactly right. And be good with the RPG and have an unlimited supply. Well, that's the other thing. I think people think that uh, for whatever reason, that Afghan, uh, sorry, not Afghans, that the Taliban that we were fighting, for whatever reason, people think that they don't have access to weapons or that they were just always using Soviet era. But I think there's a deeper conversation to be had here, i.e. funding where these weapons are coming from and and how they are getting them at the pace that they are. So can we touch on that at all? Yeah, I mean, I think that the Taliban was never a terrorist organization. They were the government of Afghanistan. The you know United States-led coalition drove the Taliban into Pakistan, Western Pakistan. And they used that as their uh, base to facilitate logistics, where most of the um, American coalition went through Kuwait, the Taliban's went through Pakistan. And, you know, where they got their funding, a lot of it just came from the opium game, but they still had other countries. Um, and, I, you know, Iran, I don't think helped as much with the Taliban as they did the uh, insurgency in Iraq. Because I can say from a, a counter ID standpoint, the electro uh, force penetrators, EFP, something like that. I mean, those things were lethal. In 05, 06, they were just killing Marines um, by the day. And those things never actually showed up in uh, Afghanistan like they did in Iraq. And those were strictly Iranian-based technology. So... The Taliban, I think, just has had a lot, a huge war chest of money, and they had a safe haven in Pakistan, and they had some players like the Chechnyans and and probably some help from uh, other people, uh, but they just had a lot of money, and they had the ability to, to facilitate it through Pakistan. Nothing proxy at all there at all, huh? That's fine. It's I mean, we did the same thing when the Russians fought the Taliban, right? So to think other mm -hmm. players that have a beef with America won't do the same thing is naive. And it's also short-sighted. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're doing the same thing in Ukraine right now. I, right? Okay, <laughs> right? I was... like, so it's not like a, we can hold the moral high ground and say we don't do it. Like that's the way the game's played. 
Oh, I'm so glad you said it because now I can tangent on it. Oh, okay, let's go into that. So this proxy war that we're fighting that is fucking bullshit. We are spending an exorbitant amount of money on these people thinking that this is just going to keep getting better or it's going to be like Afghanistan where we can just keep sending the money and it's not going to escalate, that it's not going to get to a point where World War III is going to pop off and we're going to lose people. We're going to lose people at a pace that is so fucking fast that humanity is not going to exist anymore if we keep pushing down the line. There is no moral high ground here. The thing that irritates me the most about America, and I love America, you guys are right below me. Wear your weird little communist hat that everyone thinks nothing is going on in Canada, that we're the country of freedom, that we're not involved with the Chinese, that we don't have Chinese police officers in multiple, multiple cities, literally taking Chinese dissidents out of the country that, you know what, that's fine, right? So your hat's on fire. You guys have a geriatric old man who can't talk running your country. And you guys, for whatever reason, think that we should be supporting what the hell is going on. I, I don't know how to get around it. I don't know how to say it. This is going nowhere good, nowhere fast. We have Canadians deploying to Latvia to play war games. We're playing war games where an ND could just set off World War III. We're taunting something. And I don't understand why our population thinks that flags and stickers and I support Ukraine is going to do anything when Zelensky is one of the most corrupt government officials and has been for decades. Give me something here, Stu. I mean, I'm with you. I, I've, I've done a bunch of interviews on this topic. I think that NATO has crippled our European partners led by the United States. I think Zelensky was woefully unprepared for the Russian invasion. So I use the example of 2006. I was in Beirut and Israel, a overwhelming force in terms of armament and just uh, resources, went into Lebanon and Hezbollah had an intricate tunnel system built and they just took it to the Israelis, like completely stuck it to them. That's because Hezbollah was prepared. I mean, Zelensky has had, I mean, since Crimea, since 14, I mean, he's had almost, um, well, not just Zelensky, but all of Ukraine in terms of military preparedness for this had at least eight years of like, you know, this is probably coming to build tunnels and a defense. And what they did is instead they did nothing. And then, then they looked to the West to say, you got to support us because we're a democracy. So there, there needs to be some individual accountability on the country not doing anything to protect itself as well. And so I was really bothered by that. And yeah, you're exactly right. The billions upon billions upon billions that we keep sending them almost unaccounted for in a lot of respects. Like that, we, the, we sent the first 40 billion and the 13 billion went straight into the state officials' hands with like no accounting, which I'm sure got kicked back um to some of the politicians that we have here and there's no way to track it and then we've since given them uh another couple 40 billion iterations and so yeah i i'm with you i think there has to be now i want to be clear like i think that democracy should be protected i think thousand percent i think he's the aggressor all that i i agree 
And I also, you know, don't think just because Putin's the aggressor and a lot of people think that he's irrational. I don't think he's irrational. I think he's stated very clearly that NATO is the threat to Russia. And in the expansion of NATO, he whether like he really thinks they're an imminent threat or he was just able to use that as a validation to have his land acquisition campaign that he wants to have, like he's the aggressor. But uh, yeah, I think our strategy right now is short-sighted. All we're doing is showing countries that they can be unprepared. European allies don't have to do anything. And the United States is just going to keep funneling billions upon billions of dollars unaccounted for. And it's it's not a long-term sustainable strategy. No, it never has. It's been really frustrating to watch. It's like watching <clears throat> within the, obviously there had to be a response to Russia that can't be just left unchecked. Don't get me wrong. But like you said, there's a playbook. He's done this before. We saw it. It's not, he's not going to leave the country without taking some part of that land. And everyone's all excited about his new, the new fallback, right? And Zelensky goes in yesterday. They have the national anthem. Everyone's out. You know, they've been liberated by the Russians, but I don't think people really understand what that means. Winter is coming. Yeah, I, I, I truly like, obviously I would think everyone is really hoping that it doesn't come to that. Um, I don't think, I, I hope, I would like to believe that the Russian people wouldn't allow that to happen. Now, how much control do the Russian people have when Putin is the guy with the finger on the trigger? You know, I, I got all that. But man, I, I just, I hope it doesn't come to that. But I, I guess I, where I, I think part ways with you a little bit is Putin is the aggressor, right? hundred so, percent. You know, to say he's got nuclear weapons, so we got to back away. So there's not a nuclear winner when he is the one that has been aggressive and has started the war is where I kind of draw the line. Now, do I think we should be giving all these billions of dollars? No. But do I think people should just be giving in to Russia because they were aggressive? No. I, I, I disagree with that. No, I think pushing Putin is one thing, but I think the way we're doing it is is not going to bode well. I think you can only put somebody in a corner for so long before they're going to utilize every tool and option at their disposal. I don't think I, I don't think you and I part ways on that. I think the difference is the frustration level in the accounting and how we are just handing over billions of dollars to another country. Here's where I get frustrated. America, uh, I think one of the last stats I read, and I'll make sure, and somebody feel free to correct me on this, but mm, over 130 million Americans are functionally illiterate. You have children who don't have food every day. You have a foster care system overflowing with individuals who need support. You have ooh, a crash in, in so many different economic failures in America where parts of America don't even have clean drinking water. Parts of Canada, province beside me, don't have clean drinking water. We have individuals who can't afford heat, people who are on food stamps, and we have fucking problems here. Here. So why are we everyone else's fail safe? Yeah, that's where I get very frustrated too. I think quite honestly, you didn't even bring this up. The Southern border of America. Oh, I that's personally visited it. I mean, it's, it's a nightmare. I, I can't trust what's in the media. So I went there and personally looked at it and yeah. I could go into it, but it's so bad right now. And you've got probably a hundred thousand American forces across Europe, essentially being Europe's police force 
if I was the president, I would pull that entire NATO force and I would put it on the southern border. So let's talk about it a little bit. I know you might not want to, but we're going to do it because it's my show. And you're not the boss anymore. So tell me a little bit about what's going on, because for those that are listening, um, most of my listeners are American, but we do have quite a few everywhere else around the world. And I want them to understand the significance of this border, because it has been in the media, like you said, I don't trust the media. I advise anyone who listens to really just turn off the news. It's not going to do you any good and it's going to hurt your mental health quite significantly. But this is why I get cranky. I get cranky because I'm tired of our tax dollars and our country. And do not get me wrong when I state this. Yes, we do have to go and fight for people who are being wiped off the face of the earth for no reason other than they just live in that country. But if that's the rule we're going to fall by, and that's the thing that we're going to guide ourselves with, what about China? What about the Uyghurs? What about Saudi Arabia? What about the fact that Iran is literally now just sentenced to death all of those protesters and is rallying them up and there's going to kill tens of thousands of fucking people who are just standing up for the right? So if that's the case then why aren't we going around to all these other countries and being like, you know what? Maybe we stop killing all the Uyghurs because like that's, that's fucked and putting them in concentration camps. Maybe we stop bombing Yemen. Maybe we stop all of this partnerships with countries like Saudi Arabia that behead women and other individuals for just not wearing a headscarf. So if this is the case and we're going to be the world's police, then why are we picking and choosing who we do it with? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> the uncomfortable answer is that there are relationships between governments that force blinders to some of these issues. And so to your point, it's hard to have the moral high ground and say we have to do there's a morality reason that we have to do this when you're not doing it in other places. But the reason you're not doing it in other places is because of the relationship you have that you feel is more important than whatever that morality issue is. Right. And it's, you know what, it's the gross answer, but it's the answer that needs to be said. Now, back to America's border and just the flooding in. Yeah. So I went to, this was probably in March of this year, maybe February. Uh, I went down to the, I actually was at the Black Rifle compound in, in uh, what is that, San Antonio. And mm -hmm. I had a congressional candidate that was there with me and I was friends with him. And he was going to go to the border just to take a look at it. And so I, he's asked me, Stu, do you want to go? And I was like, yeah. So we went to this place called Roma, Texas. And my buddy had a border patrol agent that met us. And Roma, Texas, this border patrol station is in charge of 30 miles of border. Now, the entire southern border is like 1,900 miles and change, right? So just do the ratio of 30 miles that he was in responsible for. That night previous, they had found found 150 people crossing the border. And when they were crossing the border, what the cartel does is they were putting wristbands on them. So like, if you're from Brazil or Ecuador, you get a red wristband. If you're from China or you're from wherever, you get a green wristband. So it was like an amusement park. So based on money and country of origin, they wristband them and then pushed them across. And in my head, the Rio Grande was like this raging river this part where i was at in roma texas it was like just a rock creek bed that you could just walk across and i literally i went up to this spot and there was a national guard truck there because it was such a an obvious crossing point and so i was talking to the national guardsman 
And while I was sitting there talking to them, because we pull up in a black SUV, the cartel saw us. And so then they processed, hey, important people, suburban. So the cartel member literally walked halfway across the creek bed, pulled his phone out and started recording me. And so then I took my phone out and we were like, so I have recording of me recording him recording me. Right. And we're sitting, I'm like, this is crazy. Like he's like walking across the Creek bed recording me. And, and then, so then I asked the border patrol agent, I was like, Hey man, just do the math. Like if you found 150 on a 30 mile stretch, and then I was to do the ratio of 1900 miles, like that's astronomical. I was like, well, can we publish these stats? And he was like, no, I'll get fired. And so we're in a place where we can't even like factually speak about what's happening. And then he went further in the whole, there was like a, a political issue at one point where people were crossing with kids. This was when yep. Trump was president. And they were like, hey, they're separating families. Well, the border patrol agents got savvy and they're like, well, we have blood testing capability. We'll just blood test them and then we'll prove if they're the family. And they weren't obviously because they were trafficking mm -hmm. children. Mm -hmm. And then our one of our democratic, I'm sorry, one of our political parties came down <laughs> and made it illegal to blood test them to prove that they're not parents of these kids that they're bringing across. I mean, the rational thought, like if you just go, like again, don't take my word for it. Just you go. can drive to the border, find the National Guardsman or a Border Patrol agent, and ask them exactly what I'm asking, what I'm telling you. And it, it's so alarming. Like it's obviously in, unsustainable if we continue at this rate there's going to be a huge problem we haven't even fully comprehended yet oh how infuriating is it okay i remember seeing uh somebody one a community member sent me like a screenshot of the wristbands like a whole bunch on the ground they were just gathering up basically just whole hands full of them and he goes this is human trafficking this is what human trafficking looks like and i remember going like fuck's the wristbands about bro like why are they putting wristbands on these people but i guess that makes complete sense if you want to segregate individuals but how infuriating is it to see a, ta um, a taliban fuck might as well be a cartel member standing right there within shots distance that you know is going to go and drug people and children and going to force them across how infuriating was that for and you he's going to charge them money for it uh, yeah, they're going to be like, hey, I'll take your 10 G's, your 15 G's. Just come with me. And then I'm going to drug your kids. I'm going to take them. I'm going to traffic them. I'm going to separate you. And I'm going to send you to America. And guess what? They're going to keep you. That's right. Why? Why is this happening? Again, a lot of, uh, a lot of complications when you start looking at, um, there's a lot of alternative motives. I, I, I've got my theories. I'm not going to speculate here, but it comes down to, in a lot of ways, votes. Um, and so there are states that are making state legislation that you have to be an American citizen to vote. Okay, first uh, off, think just stop for a second. I'm going to be real rude and interrupt you. The fact that America's democracy does not require you to have a government ID, at least no. one piece, we need two in Canada to it's vote. Like, I honestly didn't believe, I'm going to interrupt you now. I honestly didn't believe that was a thing. And my buddy, you can look him up. His name is Matt Strickland. He's running for state Senate in Virginia. He made a YouTube video where he went into the polling office and was like, I don't have any ID. And they let him vote. 
And so he, he then like comes out. It's like, I just proved to you, like, you do not need an ID to vote in Virginia. So, you know, like write on a paper, a piece of paper. My name is Matt Strickland. I live in Virginia. Like, it's true. Like, I, again, I can't trust the media. <laughs> and so my buddy made a YouTube video where he went in and he voted and he didn't have an ID. And I was just like, I can't believe that this is happening. Is it that, is it that the, the voting system itself is, is it that it's the voting system? Is it that it's congr Congress? Is it that it's individuals who are working at the polling stations? Is there a reason for this? And has it always been like this? I think, it again, it comes down to people wanting votes. And so they're willing to look a blind eye. I think there's a lot of good people out there that are trying to tighten the reins. I mean, honestly, I think, but there's just so much noise out there. Like, even... Major League Baseball, like an organization that should be apolitical that requires like a driver's license for you to get tickets at will call made like a public statement that needing an ID to vote. They were pulling the all-star game from some city. I mean, it's just so like when you have mm. huge organizations like this in America that are basically advocating for you don't need an ID to vote, it really makes it hard to have like a rational conversation. And so you know, I, it's just, it's a complicated issue. Like, obviously, the, the owners of Major League Baseball are probably very influential people. And those very influential people are advocating clearly that they don't want you to have an ID to vote, which is is weird. No, it's not weird. It's just money talks. That's all it is. It's nothing more complicated than that, in my opinion. Um, that's what's really troubling is to watch what's happening in America and the separation between individuals. I think that's one of the most troubling things I saw recently. Um, so we do this thing every Monday. I'll have you come on. It's called Mental Health Monday. We do it on the Brass and Unity Instagram. And we just talk about, you know, ways to improve your life, like just trying and like, you know, whether it's physical fitness or food or turning the fucking news off or just, you know, what you absorb with people around you. One of the really interesting stats I saw recently was that people don't spend time with their families anymore, whether that's because um, they don't find it important or I hate to say it over the past two years, the governments and pretty much any government has stated that, you know, it's going to be the death winter. If you hang out with your family, your friends, all of you are going to die. So, you know, uh, I don't know if it's that people just don't care anymore about one another. I don't know if that they, they think that the division is so far apart that there's just no commonality or no common ground, whether your family members or friends, like, I don't know about you, but I'm assuming, <laughs> Just taking a stab in the dark here. You didn't keep a lot of friends after this book. You didn't really have a lot of individuals being like, you know what, Stu? I'm going to publicly have your back. You know, it's funny you say that because I didn't have any friends when I wrote the book. And ironically, after writing the book, I had a lot of people reach out and say, you know what? I agree with everything in your book. And so publicly? I did. Yeah, and, and uh, some influential people too. Yeah, so, you got a list, homie. Uh, so there was, you know, I was surprised by that. I had more people reach out after I wrote the book than when I was going through everything I went through. When I went through everything I went through, no one reached out. But for some reason, the book, uh, it, it made a lot of people reach out. Did you think that maybe people were, because when it was all happening. Hey, you, have you checked in with yourself today? How are you doing? How are you feeling? Have you had enough water? This is your midday check-in, brought to you by Midday Squares. Big breath in, 
<sighs> I'm back at it. When this all went down and the video came out and you were removed from command and all of the steps started to just kind of unfold, did people just not think this was going to be a big deal? Did people really think that you were going to stay quiet about this forever? Did What was it? Or were people just truly afraid to attach themselves to you for fear of repercussion? Yeah. It's, it's, it's why people don't speak out. It's because it's fear. There's a lot to lose. People are more willing to die on the battlefield than they are to give up their retirement, bottom line. And so, you know, reaching out to me was risky. I mean, even liking or sharing my social media content was very risky. So people just stayed away from it. That's why bosses couldn't even reach out to me on a human level because they didn't want to give the impression that they were reaching out to me, right? So it's just fear. Were they looking for you to be silenced or just give up on your own? And for lack of a better example, just no longer exist? Is that what they were betting on? I didn't even put this in my book, but I think they were just trying, yeah, they were hoping I would implode. What I didn't put in my book is I was on the random urinalysis like every week for like four months. And it was like, they were just like hoping that I was on some type of drug. Like I'm that big of an idiot, right? So it was like, they were, and I really think that they, what, the reason they leaked my investigation to task and purpose because they were really trying to send a narrative of like this guy is about to fall apart and i think they just assumed that i would fall into a bottle and just disappear and i don't think that they anticipated that i was gonna take this as far as i did yeah yeah and you did it fast too hey Sorry. you did it fast i mean that turnaround time i gotta tell you i mean i've been working on getting my book out for about four years now you from uh, when did this come out exactly what was the date it, it uh i had it written i'd written it in six read it i wrote it in, he's a marine yeah. everyone i'm Give an him author a i swear i swear i'm an author listen in all fairness i wrote it i wrote it one march really till the end of march let's say i had like version one so one month but that's misleading because I had been journaling and I did audio recordings and I had formatted it. So the one month was really after all the work I'd put in was just like writing it. And then, you know, you got to do like three weeks of just like a hundred edits. And that was very emotionally draining because that yeah. story was like personal for me and having to keep rereading it was like uh, physically and emotionally draining each time. And so Bottom line is I got it done in probably about two months, but you know, also has to be known that I, my family had left me. Um, and so I was in a condo by myself and I literally just locked myself in no other distractions. And so we're talking like eight to eight every single day I was working on it. And I mean, it shows dedication. It shows your willingness to to take this as seriously as you did. I think what I like a lot about this book too, um, oh, you were really honest about what you felt were the failures as a father and as a husband um, fr from the very beginning. And I think that's something to take notice for. Uh, a lot of our people in our community, um, I make this joke and it's, it's because I, I've learned really, really quickly that if I want people to, in this community, to tell me their deep, dark secrets, there has to be some levity to this before I dive into the fact. Um, most people leave the military or while in the military with at least one divorce and one DUI. 
that's like it's just a joke we all you know a lot of people make but that's not really a fucking joking matter let's be honest it's it's a real big failure of the system probably got the dui because their marriage sucked (laughs) yeah no shit uh yeah that's exactly what happened so you when you you talk a lot about uh your ex-wife in this book and you talk about how you became a father the first time and and you really do go through the steps that you two took to stick together and it sounds like um at the beginning of this book you really did put the work in you put the effort in and you showed up but due to the job that you were in you know you don't get to necessarily decide when you get to see your wife and your children and when that you get to be around so can we talk yeah. about that, the, so th- yeah go that, ahead. I, I, yeah that was very hard for me because i went through a divorce and anyone that's been through a divorce knows it's it never easy but, you know, I still I spent 17 years with her. Like, I still love her, right? I want the best for her. So I was trying not to be vindictive. She went through a lot as well. And we just decided to go separate ways. But that's exactly right. I appreciate you asking the question. I tried to show that it's tough. And I got it. Everyone knows the military is tough. And, you know, it's still an all-volunteer force. But I wanted to illustrate that, you know, she was a victim in this uh, to a certain extent, um as well and you know we're both good people we both tried to make it work we both worked at it for a long time and she gave up a lot in her personal and professional life to stick by me as well right um and so it just kind of ended where it did we're on good terms but we did agree to go separate ways yeah i will i do want to acknowledge that because at at no point did i re- that when i was reading this huh, let's try again I'm- catching off of you now at no point reading this book did i feel that there was any vindictive malicious intent toward her but to only highlight her in the struggles in the best way that you possibly could and as a mother you from seeing it from my side you had every opportunity just in the headspace that you're in writing this where you could have just gone, fuck man, you, listen, you and I both know plenty of service members where it's like, my wife is a bop, 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 bop. And yeah. you're like, that's the mother of your children. Regardless, right. if you don't feel that way now, she made life for you in the intention of having this family. And I think you respected her. Um, and I hope that she, you know, I hope that she views it that way as well. Yeah, so I'll offer you guys. So I gave her a pre-read, right? So I gave, yeah. let's say mid-April when it was done, I sent it to her and then we went and had lunch and I I asked her her thoughts and no lie, her feedback was this. She was like, you know, it was good. Uh, I thought you were going to write more about Afghanistan. This is the book you chose to write. And I was like, you didn't have, you were good with how like I talked about you. I said exactly that. I didn't want to be vindictive. She's like, the only thing that bothered me was you said that we let the turtles go and I hope PETA doesn't come after me. I was like, if that's what you're worried about, if you're just worried about that turtle thing, I was like, we are good, babe. Like, I appreciate that. Dude, that's solid. It's true though. I think that's, (laughs) but that shows right there that there was never any malicious intent. You two really meant to be in each other's lives in a positive manner. And I think that's the difference. Our community, I think it's like, what is the divorce rate in special operations? Like 94, 95%. I mean, for God's sakes, the least we can do is give each other some grace. Nobody is expecting to go through these situations and come out unscathed. Like you said, it is a volunteer force, but the families and, oh, it's the saddest part of knowing as many people in the military as I know, because I was 
mm, I don't want to say smart enough or fortunate enough. But when people ask me, oh, did you meet your husband in the military? I, I often chuckle and say, no, I wanted to stay married. But then I married a professional athlete. So I also, it's not that different, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm just yeah, saying I mean, look at Tom Brady. He feels like he's on deployment all the time. Yeah. Well, Tom Brady could have just uh, retired a long time ago, given his wife a little more attention and he would still have a seven foot tall goddess walking around. Oh my God. Who gives that up? Who? I mean, anyway, I'm not in the room. On to the next one. Oh, that's gross, man. That's gross. I would like to think that's the other thing. Like when is enough money, enough money? When is enough fame enough fame? Yeah, you know, you see it a lot. It's uh, guys that they attach their purpose in life to that thing, that job. So that's what's going on with Tom Brady. That's yeah, it's all he knows. It's his purpose. And so I, I understand the the psychology. Obviously, I'm being flippant. Everything I've read about Giselle is she's a good person. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's unfortunate that they didn't... Um, work it out but i also i see the other side too like that's tom brady she knew what she was buying when she got with tom brady and you know as long as tom brady could play football that's what he wanted to do so like should he have to give that up for her i i I see you know there's probably fault on both sides there well i think there's always fault on both sides i don't unless it's due to violence i don't know that there's you know fault on one or the other i just think it happens i think when you stop communicating I think when you stop being ruthlessly honest with each other, and I think when you stop looking at someone and putting them above yourself in some way, shape or form, it's bound to happen. And I see it happening with friends. I've seen it happen on deployments. I've, I've seen people come out of comms tent and just start losing their shit. And I go, what's the few fucking, what, what just happened there? And they go, oh, I have no money. Uh, apparently all my stuff is gone and uh, my pension is probably gone too. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's the evil when you Mm -hmm. break up, like, again, even I've subscribed to, you know, once I went through my divorce that I was going to make sure we had the best relationship co-parenting going forward. And, and so we've been able to navigate that, but why you would want to try and hurt someone is really just, uh, it's indicative of you still being in pain, right? So if you're in pain, you want to hurt someone else, and you just have to be emotionally intelligent enough to to be bigger than that. And the one thing I'll comment, I don't we're kind of way off topic right now, but one thing I want to comment is you talked about relationships. You said always putting the other person uh, uh, in front of you or ahead of you. And I just think that that's probably the most tricky thing because if you're constantly putting the other person first and and y- it can build resentment. I think there mm. are times where you have to be the best version of yourself. And you hope that that person wants to be there with you while you're being the best version of yourself. But if you're always putting that other person first, I think it builds. I I talk to Marines about this all the time because they're like, why are you getting out? Well, my wife wants me to get out. It's like, well, do you want to get out? Because if you get out and then you're unhappy, all you're going to do is resent her. Like this has to be something that you decide. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, and you know, we're talking about Tom Brady and Giselle. I think it's kind of the same thing. Giselle wanted him to get out, but like did Tom Brady want to get out? Mm -hmm. And if he did get out because that's just what she wanted, would it build resentment? And so these that's really probably the most complicated. It was the same thing in my my divorce. You know, I made decisions that my wife didn't agree with, but I thought it was in the, the best uh, decision for me. And what a lot of people criticized me for it and called it selfish um, because I didn't put her first in that situation. But I felt like 
you know, I was doing what I thought was best on the macro level for me, for the country, for all these reasons that I thought were very important. And I was hoping that she would stick with me on that. And she is very kind of similar to Giselle and Tom Brady in the sense that she's like, no, she went her own way. But, um, you know, relationships are tough. Relationships are tricky. And I think they're dynamic and they're ever changing and they're they can be quite messy if you just stop communicating. I think when I say put other people first, I think the one thing, oh God, I'm such a fucking mom. It hurts. I do this with all my friends. I do this with anybody. I do put people up, I want to say ahead of me, but I think when I say I put someone first, I think about how it will make them feel. I'm not saying I make decisions to be selfish or I do it all for them, but I think I try to sit down and go, I'm going to make this decision. This is going to affect X, Y, and Z. Then I sit down and have a conversation with X, Y, and Z and say, okay, this is how I think it's going to affect you. Can you tell me how it'll actually affect you? And then we make a decision based off of that. So when I say I put others before me, I do. I'm known for it. I'm ruthless for it. And that may be a fault of mine, but what it has shown me is it's acceptable to put others before you as long as you are doing it in ways that are to benefit the collective, meaning when I talked about my husband about this publishing deal, when I was like, Hey, this is going to come out. I'm going to have to go do this stuff. I'm going to be on the road. This is going to affect you and Jack. And I'm going to be away. How do you feel about it? And he goes, is this what you want? And I said, I want this for us. And I want to be able to improve our lives. And he goes, well, we'll be right here when you're ready to come back. Because you can think of others before you, but it's how you choose to then execute those decisions. You can be, Hey, I've talked to you about it. And that person go, yeah, I'm good with it. But if you're not checking back in with that person, or you're not constantly just having that over communication, I think that's where things split and go into a bit of a failure. As you can tell, I'm an over communicator and I will sit and talk your ear off until I feel like we have gotten the point across to one another so that there's no miscommunication happening at any point. Um, that being said, I do find with military members, it is very difficult to have emotional conversations if they are not ready and or have dealt with some of the difficult things in their lives, which brings me to my next point with you. As you've stated several times, unfortunately, you did go through a divorce. Now, how has that been for you and your children being so public about Afghanistan, the fallout of what happened to you? And how do you think your kids are going to perceive this or those around them? Well, my kids are now 12, 10, and 8. You know, so they were, you know, a year younger a year ago, obviously. They had to move schools. They had a tough time. When I was in jail, everyone was making fun of them because their dad was in jail. One of my kids had to leave the playground crying. Um, and they and they moved schools. It was it was a tough situation for them. But, you know, they're they're resilient. And I they're, you know, a lot of people in the aftermath of this have, have um, been very supportive of me in a lot of ways. So when I go out around like doing a book tour, like long lines, everyone telling me how much they appreciate everything I did, but my kids are probably somewhere um, dialed back from that because they had their whole life uh, upended because of this. They had to move. They saw their parents go through a divorce. And so in, in some ways I'm sure they're frustrated with me and we've talked through it. Therapists, like all that got it. Um, and, but you know, it's just one of those things where I just got to keep being there for them, show them that I love them, continue to be a father, uh, in their lives. And then as they get older, they can come to their own conclusions. I think that's a great way of dealing with it. I'm, I'm 
I'm sorry little kids are so cruel because little kids, when they don't understand what they're saying half the time, they can be quite cruel. And I'm I'm sure that was really traumatic. Um, yeah, so I'll give you, this is kind of a funny story, but like not kind of a funny story. So <laughs> uh, again, I went through a divorce, but we still do stuff as a, as a family every once in a while. And so we went to uh, Bush Gardens and Bush Gardens has this like, I don't know, you get on this chair gondola and at the base of the gondola, they had bison. I don't know why they had bison, but they had bison. So we're like waiting in line for the gondola and there's bison there. And it's me and my ex and our three boys. And I was like, look at those bison. I was like, I think I'm going to go jump on one of those. You guys, I was like, do you guys think I'll jump on one? And my oldest looks right at me. He's like, dad, I don't think we need you to go to jail again. Right. And so like you laugh, like it's funny, but at the same time, it's like not funny. Right. So like, that's kind of like the way I'm like navigating this right now. Like, okay. 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 You know what though? That is, I think that's awesome. I think that it's awesome because that shows me that your children are not afraid to point out your failures or issues or things that have happened in our life that are difficult because we forget that these kids are sponges and they see and they hear everything, even if we think that they're not paying attention. But the fact that he was able to slap back that way, I'm sorry, I would have kind of been like, all right, high five, you got that one. That one's on you. You know, I did, I did. I laughed, I was like, all right. I was like, well said. You know, but then it's like, oh, that kind of stung. Yeah, but hey. There's a time and a place, man. And he seems like he picked it well. It's not like you were receiving some big medal and he was like, don't go to prison again. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. you know, you got to respect the kid for that. I, I love that. I think that's uh, I think that's great. And I also think it's it's great that you guys do things together because it shows that you can go through something difficult, but that does not mean that you need to be an absentee father. It does not mean that you have to be out of someone's life. It means that you can be there if you just show enough emotional intelligence and put others above you so that they can feel like they're still important and loved. That's good. Yeah, I think it's fucking awesome, man. Um, Okay, let's talk about the way forward. Let's talk about how we prevent this from happening again. It's already happening. How do we do this properly? I don't want to do this again, though, in the world. So tell me, where do we go from here? There's a lot of things that need to happen. Uh, So I I put 13 points at the end of the book. I think the big one for me is in the military system is not built on performance. And so government organizations whether it's the FBI in America or if it's a police force or it's the military, you can't bring in outside talent to be managers. And so you basically home grow over, you know, four-star generals, 40 years. So imagine a career where you have to home grow somebody for 40 years. And so then the system of how you promote and train and, and build this person over 40 years becomes very important. And I think in the American military system, because it's just not performance-based, it's an evaluation that is subjective from a superior and that superior can have different opinions that may not be in line with what the organization should be. So I would advocate for a performance-based system. Number one, like that's the first thing I would change. The second thing I would do is I would clean up some of the old bureaucratic general officers. Uh, there was a guy in the American military named Marshall that came in after world war one. And he did just that. And he cleaned out a lot of the old archaic generals. And then that allowed the ascension of someone like Eisenhower, some young talent, which you know led to a lot of our success in World War II. So we need probably a secretary of defense to come in that understands a lot of these problems, that can clean up a lot of the, the old style leadership. 
And then, you know, you can go through the rest of my list. There's just a bunch of ways that the system isn't working. And what, what we can't do is what we did after Vietnam and really just not go back and hold any senior leaders accountable, continue to have the system operate in the same way and just focus on the tactical level because that's what we've continued to do. And that's what has continually led to failure. And I see us doing that now. All we're talking about is how to tactically reorganize the force. And that's not why we're losing wars. We're losing wars because the system doesn't work and the senior officers are not who they should be. Do you think Afghanistan, this is going to be a rough one. Do you think Afghanistan could have been won if we threw out the rule book and started doing what needs to be done in order to put people down? You know, it's like, you know, what is winning? We'll start there. So for me, winning was destroying Al-Qaeda. So I think we could have won within a year had we just gone in there and allowed Task Force 58 to go into the Torbor region and kill Osama bin Laden. We didn't do that. And then, you know, we drove the Taliban into Pakistan. We weren't willing to go into Pakistan. So it's not like even, even in Afghanistan where if we would have just like thrown the ROEs out the window, I mean, that may have been a, a slightly more effective, but quite honestly, the, the best thing you could have done was gone into Pakistan um, if you really wanted to destroy the Taliban. And we weren't willing to do that. And then we killed Osama bin Laden and probably could have called it a strategic success and pulled out. We chose not to do that. And then we chose to stay. And then all of a sudden it was like, everyone unanimously is like, well, we know we could have never won this. And I was like, well, why have we been doing this? And so, um, you know, to me, it's less about ROEs on the tactical level and just more about our operational approach. Um, and, you know, the generals will point at the politicians, the politicians will point at the generals and just no one holds anyone accountable. And, and it just doesn't work right now. How do we start holding people accountable if we're already we've already forgotten about Afghanistan and we're on to the next. Well, I mean, you got to start somewhere. Honestly, I've had an argument that's like, why? Because a lot of my target of my wrath was a guy named General McKenzie that was a theater commander. And everyone's like, well, why hold him accountable when all the generals of the last 20 years have failed too, right? Well, I don't know. Like, we let's start somewhere. Let's somewhere. pick someone at a moment <laughs> in time that has failed. Like, you all agree he's failed. But now we're saying we can't hold him accountable because no one else is accountable. Like I, too much, right? So let's right. start somewhere. Let's figure out what a general should do to achieve success. Quite honestly, the two to three year tour like may not be long enough. If the war's twenty years and you're the general that's planned the war, guess what? You're gonna stay there until we win. And if you don't want to stay there for twenty years, then maybe you shouldn't be advocating that we go over there and execute your plan. You know, and so. You know, I would do it a lot of a lot of ways differently, but I, I guess all the answer succinct answer to your question is you have to start somewhere, pick a benchmark for success for a four star to achieve political objectives within the war campaign, and don't let them rotate out of the tour until they do, or fire them if they're not hitting the metrics of what they should be hitting. I like that you stated that because we are so damn quick to send our 17, 18 year old, 19 year olds on in America, which blew my mind, by the way, 12 to 18 month tours, and they don't get to leave. They don't get mental health support. They don't get shit. And then when they come home with less than six months, we rotate their ass back. Why aren't we doing this to these generals? Why aren't we doing this to these fucking generals kids? Why aren't we putting these people in these places and saying, how do you like it? How does it feel? Does it feel good? You doing the right thing? 
you're really working out, aren't you? Why don't you go out in that Humvee that has no protection and just go roll down highway one and see how it works out for you? Because I don't understand. We're so willing to send our kids to die. Ukraine and Russia are losing upwards of hundreds of kids a day. And I say fucking kids because they are kids. These are kids that have no business fighting a war. They have business going to school and trying to learn the shit that we do to our next generation. There isn't going to be a next generation. Fuck even what the vaccine is going to do to the next generation of kids. They're not going to be able to run. Their hearts are going to explode. Like we've dummied our society so much. I don't give a shit. Don't even look at me like that. I don't care. I don't care. You're kind I'm of having like a Walter moment right now. You're just, you're like, you're really going, you're really hitting it hard right now. Well, because I think it's ridiculous. I think that we're so quick to send our kids. We worry about our kids in school, right? We worry about what we teach them. Everyone in America is like, nobody should be teaching this in our school. Nobody should be teaching that in our school. And I'm like, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. But why do you care then? Why do you stop caring when they're 17 and they can sign on the dotted line? Your kids can't vote, they can't drink, but they can go kill motherfuckers all day long. And then you send them home and go, you know what? They're war heroes. Don't worry about it. They're strong enough to handle their shit. They don't need mental health support. Now we don't have 44 kids a day killing themselves. Like death by suicide, the fact that people are just walking across the fact that the, the number has escalated to double. We have lost more kids since Afghanistan to suicide than we lost in the fucking war. Why do we yeah. keep doing this? Why? The suicide thing is is such a it's such a troubling stat, such a troubling problem, such a complicated problem. Yeah, it's and 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 quite honestly, it's crazy that senior leaders haven't diagnosed their their issue, their inability to articulate truth and their the linkage to that. And it's just like, look away and pretend like it's not happening. It's, it's disheartening. Well, it's not only disheartening, but what was really fascinating to me. And at the beginning of your book, you were talking about a lot of individuals. I'm trying to find the one though, that were in particular was really interesting to me. Um, uh, forgive me if I'm wrong. He was the guy who was basically like, um, well, there was a lot of them for you, but if you said no, or you just, you stood up to him, I think you were, ah, you were rolling into a fob. And you got out and one yeah, of the guys yeah. was Mike right, Salem. Yeah. There we go. Hit me with that story quickly, would you? This guy, this is one of those guys where I just put a, I sprinkle a couple stories, but I could just give you Mike Salem stories all day. But the guy was a tyrant. I mean, he went out of his way to just let you know that he was there and he was unhappy. And it it, it actually caused more stress on me than combat itself. And the guy threatened to fire my platoon commanders every time he went and visited them. Um, and he did fire a couple people on deployment too. And he, so the, the story I told in the book, one of them was uh, he was screaming at me because the Marines weren't eyeball defilade. And I was trying to explain to him that the training Humvees that we had had turret shields. So like where their eyeballs would be, they were like actually at the appropriate height. I couldn't even speak because he was screaming at me. And, and so I just, I shut up. And then the other story I put in the book was, yeah, we drove into Camp Ramadi and he felt like the vehicles were driving too fast uh, without a ground guide. So he, he stood in front of them and stopped them, uh, which they were able to stop because they weren't going that fast. And then the corporal got out and he started knife hand and screaming at him. And then I felt bad. I wasn't the patrol leader. The corporal was, but I was a senior guy. So I got out and he saw me and he came over and started doing the same thing. And I did this thing where I kind of like looked down because I, you know, I had a guy in my face 
And when I did that, it just, it, it irked him. And so then he took his knife hand and he started shoving it in my chest. And uh, that's when like, that's when, instead of like, you know, I was just, you know, look down and prepare for the the beating. But when he actually started like doing that to me, I, I had a moment where I thought about hitting him. And I obviously didn't because I continued to have a career, but <laughs> yeah. it's just the, the moments where it's like, I can't believe that this is my leader. Um, you know, this guy, a leader should be getting the most out of their people in terms of performance. And he just, he did not possess any other skill set other than fear. And I just really despised it. Well, that's why I bring it up though, because that's a perfect example of somebody who has probably should have stopped deploying a long time ago, should have been in mental health support, probably had undiagnosed PTS or any other anxiety disorders. And we're not looking at our leaders in the way that we look at our younger troops and going, hey, you've done a lot. You may not want to talk about it, but based off of the reaction and the way that you're training your next generation, this shit is unacceptable. Yeah. That's why I bring it up because we're so worried about uh, the, this generation of mental health. We're not worried about the leadership that is teaching this generation. It's something I don't, I don't understand. Yeah. You're, I mean, this guy he had a combat deployment as a battalion commander and didn't pick up Colonel and that, right there tells you, you know, obviously people knew that he was not um, what we needed as a leader. And I also know I have inside that multiple general officers were sitting him down and like, telling him, hey, he needed to calm down. But I guess to your point, like, why didn't they do more? Like they saw it. I'm telling that story just to say it. It wasn't like there wasn't other generals that didn't see it. They all knew it. There was, there was one time when my platoon commanders relayed the story to me where he went up and he shook the general's hand and the battalion commander was with him. This is the guy I'm talking about. Mike said it was a battalion commander. The platoon commander shook the general's hand. and was like, hello, sir. I'm Lieutenant, whatever. And then he went to go shake the battalion commander's hand. The battalion commander like wouldn't shake his hand and just stared at him. And then the platoon commander's relaying the story. And he's like, and then the general like looked at the battalion commander, like, you're not going to shake your platoon commander's hand and like had this, then they had this awkward moment and then they all kind of walked away. So the platoon commander's like, he wouldn't even shake my hand. And it was like, you know, like that was just kind of the kind of, and so like, you know, if you're a senior leader and you see a, a, a subordinate leader treating their subordinates in a, in an improper way, like if they're doing that in front of you, that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? Like yes. there's so much more under the water that they're doing not in front of you that you have to be smart enough to, to intervene. And exactly like you're right. Just because you're a Lieutenant Colonel doesn't mean that you're not struggling with stuff and, and may need a timeout. Well, let's talk about that. So you were pretty open and honest about some of the struggles that you've experienced since your combat deployments. And I think frankly, they're completely normal. I mean, the fact that we have people come home and then for whatever reason, we stigmatize them for having issues with shooting motherfuckers in the face. And we think that that's normal. If somebody comes home from multiple combat deployments who've seen action and engaged the enemy, whether it's from a distance or up close, and that person doesn't have a problem, we're dealing with a sociopath. That's a different <laughs> type of issue. So do you mind talking? Oh, fuck it. I don't yeah. care if you mind. Tell me what happened and tell me what happened right now. Yeah. So when I came home from Ramadi in Ramadi, I didn't personally kill anyone. Right. But I just, I told you about my battalion commander it was stressing right. me out. I was uh, not eating healthy. We didn't have much food. 
I was smoking cigarettes. I was uh, just not healthy and not sleeping. And so, and then, you know, add up combat around you, all that, you know, I was going, 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 never felt a letdown. And as soon as I got on my post-deployment leave, I mean, it was something like I'd never experienced. My, my whole arm went numb, my chest started hurting and I was able to get myself to the ER and they did all the tests and they were like, no, you're healthy. Everything's fine. And I mean, it was just such a real physical symptom that I was like, there's no way. And, and so like later, all the psychology books and psychologists that I've spoken to anxiety comes at you when your body tries to decompress. Right. And so that's what the post-deployment was. Like I was going so fast and hard in Ramadi that my body just kept up and your brain starts producing, you know, adrenaline more than dopamine. And then when your body tries to, you know, on post-deployment, sit on the couch and relax and have that dopamine, your body almost is like, it's almost like a withdrawal if you're trying to stop drinking, right? Like your body is having a physical reaction to this new environment. And so, and I didn't understand that. And and back in 2007, we've come a long way. In 2007, the only term they knew was PTSD, and so they were like, well, you've got PTSD. And I'm like, I don't have, like, I'm not having bad dreams, guys. Like, this is not PTSD. It's like almost Tony Soprano panic attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need, uh, I need something. And I was very reluctant to get on any types of pills. I'm a big reader. I read all the books and I didn't want to change my, my brain waves. And, um, And then, you know, I just continued on. And then after Afghanistan, it was more the same of the chest pains. But then I started having like vision blurriness and my whole face was going numb. And I I, like couldn't even focus in in rooms where I was in small classrooms at the time. And so, you know, I continued uh, to address it, eventually figured out it was anxiety and got it under control. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I tell that story just to say, though, a lot of times when people have experiences like this, it's almost like, well, I'm done. I'm broken. And I never viewed it like that. It was, I've got a problem that I have to maybe take a knee to address and, you know, we'll, we'll address it. And then once I get back to hundred percent, but then once I get, if I can get this under control, I'm only going to be stronger for it. Right. Mm-hmm. It's part of the process. Um, and so I looked at it as if I can figure out how to manage this and get my body recalibrated, I'm going to be even stronger. And so I just feel like oftentimes people look at it and say, I have these symptoms, so I must be broken and now I'm weaker. And I just think that that's flawed logic. Anything that doesn't kill us will make us stronger. You may have some scar tissue, but you learn from it. And and by learning from it, I, I really do think you become stronger. So give me the the tools that you use to cope with anxiety that are not pills. Well, uh, the immature way is alcohol. And so after uh, Ramadi, it was a lot of alcohol. And um, what you don't realize about alcohol is it's fool's gold. And so when you drink, it actually makes you feel better. But the next day, it comes back twice as hard. It mm-hmm. actually comes back worse. And so then you can get into this vicious cycle where you're like, oh, shit, it's coming back worse. And I got to drink more. And then it comes back worse, right? And so it took me a little bit of time to figure out that and break that cycle. And the best thing you can do for anxiety is working out. And I was always pretty good about that. I stayed pretty true to working out. And, you know, once I was able to um, mitigate the drinking, stay working out. And then the other big thing I got into was yoga. 
And then the other thing is caffeine too. You just got to be careful on the caffeine intake and then nicotine affects my body more than it does others. Um, for whatever reason, when I use nicotine, it just, it, it exacerbates my anxiety. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very quick trigger. So where some people it may not affect them. So it's just like you being emotionally intelligent to know what things affect your body because you can look at other people and think, well, he's doing it. So I should be able to do it, but your body may react differently than theirs. Right. And so, you know, being in a culture where everyone like dips and goes out drinking and does all these things, you can easily just get caught in the current and you have to be smart enough to figure out when to detach yourself from that and do what's best for you. Did you use any sort of talk therapy, psychoactive psychedelics, or did you anything along those lines? I didn't, I, I didn't use psychedelics. I mean, I was in the, the military the whole time. Um, when I got out, I had some people that were really pushing that. I just, I haven't done that. Um, but I'm not, I'm not opposed to it either. I think uh, everyone has their own path, like whatever works for you. Um, but I did go to a lot of uh, psychologists, um, psychiatrists, um, those types of people. And so spent a lot of time in places like that. Well, it's good. I'm glad that you're open and willing to talk about that because a lot of people need to see it from leaders. And I, and I believe uh, truly that you are a leader. And I believe that you've done exactly what you set out to do. And that was hold people accountable. I think the difference between your book and so many, obviously Afghan books is a lot of us tell our stories. You told your story, but you told it in a way where you didn't just criticize what happened. You offered a solution. And that is not something you see very often. And I think that's what sets you apart. Um, and in all honesty, it's a great read too. It's uh you know, it's written by a Marine, so it's not overly complicated, but it's, it's a great, I'm just kidding. I, typed it. I didn't write it in crayon. Okay, good. Listen, I, well, cause you can't, you never have any left. Aren't those are your snacks and your little snackies and your little pockets, little crayons. Oh, so many of my Marine friends are going to call me after this one and be like, bitch, I swear to God, if I see you in person, it's going to end badly for me. But seriously, man, um, it was an honor to watch you do what you did last year. Um, watching from Canada, <clears throat> watching us abandon people, watching American soldiers get killed due to lack of planning, um, really hit hard. I left Afghanistan due to an injury and then to watch it all fall apart just felt like, um, a waste. And I know that it's not. And I want to make sure I state that very clearly what our soldiers did and continue to do has never been a waste. It has just been a failure of the leadership by not utilizing the soldiers in a proper manner. And um, it's an honor to have you on the show. It's an honor to read your book and uh, to get to know you outside of this. Um, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, I thank you for your time, for being on the show and being patient and willing to talk about some of the things I think you did not expect to be talking about today. So yeah. thank you so uh, much, Stuart. Kelsey, I really appreciate you having me on. I'm you know, talking to a successful female that was an artillery woman is uh, pretty awesome. So uh, I appreciate you. Yeah, I'm, I'm what they call acceptable at best, my friend. <laughs> It's all good. Everyone else, Stuart, where can we find you? Where can we get this book? Where yes. can we support you? 
the book is crisis of command i have a it's on all the things amazon really wherever you buy books but my website is authenticamericans.com and so there you can find all my social media you can get a signed book through the, the website now i just put that back up you get some merchandise or other ways to donate so authenticamericans.com well now i'm feeling like a dick because my book's not signed so i guess i'm gonna have to go buy a copy and uh get a signed one add you to the stack my friend i appreciate you thank you for your service and i mean that in the most legitimate sense i don't mean it in the thank you for my service or like it's remembrance day or veterans day it's like high five good job man i mean that from a soldier who was on that ground has seen what i've seen Thank you for holding people accountable because I only wish that I had the balls when I was there to do what you did. So thank you, Stuart, for being on the show. Everyone else, we will see you all next week.